Okay, welcome back to Firewall. As usual, I'm your host, Bradley Tusk. My guest today is Eric Sufer. Eric is my colleague at Tusk Strategies. He runs our crypto practice, uh, also works on cannabis. So given that both of these things are in the news right now, we asked him to come on, and he said yes. So, Eric, thanks for joining us. Awesome. Thanks. thanks You've been on with us like your third or fourth time yeah. at this point? Yeah, so the listeners, listeners know who you are. Um, <laughs> so we're going to talk about three things. We're going to talk about crypto, we're going to talk about cannabis, and then we'll kind of pivot to politics broadly, both in New York and, and, and national. All right, fine. Um, so crypto, so you run, explain what the Tush Strategies crypto practice is. Yeah, so the crypto practice is really um, working with companies in the crypto space who want to be regulated um, or identify a need to develop relationships with lawmakers or the broader ecosystem. And by broader ecosystem, I mean not just you know other developers and builders and investors, but also the media establishment, um, advocacy groups, um, anyone who can kind of affect their business short or long term. Got it. And so FTX happens. It feels like the bottom falls out. You have how many crypto clients? Ten, eight? Yeah, about, about yeah, ten. About yeah. ten, right. So, and I know that the minute that happened, Chris and I were like, oh, shit. Um, what's, have we lost a bunch of business? Like, what's been the result? No, we, uh, we haven't. And, you know, each time something like this happens, I think FTX is sort of uniquely terrible. But um, each, each, each time this happens, I, I think there's a bunch of us that go, Oh shit! Just like right. that, and expect to get a bunch of bad bad phone calls the following week. Um, but I think the reality has been a bit different, um, particularly I think for for our folks who you know want to be regulated, who, who are regulated, and for them, I mean, the differentiator just got that much greater, right? Because um, they're in a they're in a in an ecosystem where there are bunch of unregulated players. Most are unregulated. Uh, most of the household names are un- unregulated, at least globally. Um, and so, you know, their only chance at really competing long term is by differentiating that themselves and saying, we're more stable, we're more fun, we're a little more boring. I know I said more fun, but we're, we're a little more boring, but that's because, you know, we're actually going to hold your deposits. We're not going to put them off to our ex-girlfriend's, you know, hedge fund that we kind of own. And we're not going to, you know, give you, promise you yields of, of 25, 30%. Right. So when you say regulated, what does that actually mean? So regulated, that, that means um, you have a, oftentimes you have a, what's called a prudential regulator, which means someone who is checking your books to make sure that what you say your balance sheet is actually is your balance sheet, that you actually have compliance procedures, that you actually know who your customers are, um, that you have you know, systems in place to prevent fraud, root out fraud, and then also take corrective action when you know, fraud or bad governance happens. Um, you know, and as we saw with FTX and some unregulated companies, that's just non-existent, right? I mean, you have, you know, their, I think their, their bankruptcy um, examiner, their, their, their new CEO said it's, you know, 10 times worse than, than Enron, you know, which is sort of like the classic example of the worst possibly run company, major company in modern American history. Um, and so having those controls in place... Um, allows the company to serve more customers, particularly in a state like New York, where you have to have a license and they have a very thorough, tough process to give you one. It means you can service those so customers. Did FTX have a license? No, um, and actually, they were uh, they had an outstanding application, which um, probably Sam, won't get approved. Probably won't. <laughs> you know, the the interesting thing is that about about a week before they collapse, uh, Sam, Sam Bankman-Fried had kind of shed his. You know his sort of you know warm fuzzy words for regulators, and had singled out New York State as being the most unreasonable, impossible to um, to work with. Um, and then, you know, a week later, 
we found out his yeah, company kind of was a vindicated New York State. Now, yeah. now, New York State has, and some of the listeners might know this, uh, its own license to, to enable uh, companies to, to trade crypto in the state. It's called a bit license. It's been around for a while now, probably eight, nine years. Um, and there's been talk about reforming it simply because um, even though I think we all agree that there should be real crypto regulation, it, it is a fairly bureaucratic, cumbersome process. Um, do you think that'll happen? I don't think there's going to be large-scale reform of it. I think because you know the risk profile of crypto changed since the Bit license was first created in, in 2015. Um, you know there are less. You know at, back when Bit license was created in 2015, there was a concern that this was just going to be used exclusively by you know money launderers and assassins and North Korea and Iran and terrorist groups. Now that that you know oh, they're that, like seven percent of it. Yeah. <laughs> so now 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 that risk certainly still exists. Um, but it's a little, you know, regulators are a little less concerned that, you know, um, those types of criminals are going on to major exchanges to, you know, to, to launder money. Instead, they're now more worried about fraud and systemic risk to the overall financial system. So while the risk has to change, the, the, the risk analysis, the kind of review of it is, is, is still very, very substantial. Okay. So as, as an advocate for crypto, answer this for me, right, which is, I would say there's you know one percent of people who actually trade crypto, truly believe in the underlying mission and concept of a sovereignless currency. They truly don't trust central banks, central governments. This is their ideology, and I actually get it in some ways. I, I admire it. Um, Ninety-nine percent are people who are just kind of along for the ride, trying to make a quick buck. Um, are they staying in the market? And if they don't, how do all these crypto companies survive? No, I think we're going to see a lot a lot of investors. Uh, remove themselves from from the market, and but I don't think it's going to be just the kind of Bitcoin true believers who stay. Um, I still think you know there's a lot of liquidity in just what's called ICOs, initial coin offerings, um, which are really the mechanism, the fundraising mechanism through which a lot of builders in crypto raise money mm-hmm. for their for their development project. Um, so there are still there's still a lot of that money out there, including many folks who made you know a pretty penny in those ICOs uh, over the past few years. I think they're still going to be in the market. I think there is still um, an institutional, if not movement or march, still an institutional drift to crypto, um, as long as it can kind of stabilize and show that they can you know, grow up and have more regulated players and have a little bit more stability in the ecosystem. That's obviously not going to happen tomorrow or next week. Um, but there, there are real professionals in this business. And you know, I, I think the returns over time have been too great um, for the big money to really sit out. And is there ultimately, if you're if you're Wall Street, um, you know you view crypto as both a threat and an opportunity. But is there really a major distinction between a particular token and what ultimately will become the U.S. digital dollar? I mean, doesn't if, in terms of people being able to do transactions of any kind, you know, on their phone, it's how is it different? If, if anything, the U.S. digital dollar should be more have more utility. Yeah, I mean, the, the digital dollar, I mean, there are really, the digital dollar is a really polarizing subject in the in the cryptoverse. Um, there's some who believe that it, it's, it's totally at odds um, with the philosophy of Bitcoin and of crypto, mm-hmm. um, which is, you know, decentralization, no intermediaries, don't trust central banks. Um, and then there are others who think that it's a 
you know, a great leap forward for the entire ecosystem because, you know, there's no greater sign of legitimacy for what you're doing than, you know, the most state regulators, the Federal Reserve issuing a central currency. Right. I mean, I, my view has always, not always, because this is re recent stuff, but like, to me, when the metaverse is fully here, and it's, it's coming, right? You, you, Microsoft and Apple and Facebook don't spend tens of billions of dollars right. on something that's not going to happen. Um, and so much more interactions and commerce sort of happens digitally. To me, that's when crypto, at least some of the tokens, can become true currencies because you know, if you're a merchant in the metaverse, like, why not take Bitcoin? Why not take right. Ethereum? And, you know, it's one thing when you already have this system and that you have to sort of add them in and it's complicated and credit card processors and everything else. But if you're starting something new, so it, it does feel like if crypto can hang on for a couple of years, there's a natural landing spot for it that makes sense. Yeah, I mean, look, I, th I think we have to weed out these these shit coins, as as people derisively call them, and honestly, somewhat rightfully. Um, but you know, so, so much of the perception of crypto and of the various coins that are out there is shaped by American media, which makes total sense. But at the same time, we also happen to be in the country with the most stable currency in the history of the world. Right. Um, so you know, the, the we we are really the exception to the rule than the rule um, globally, um, and that's also one reason why so many of these major exchanges like Binance, like to, to an extent Crypto.com, and to an extent FTX, um, built so much of their business overseas. Because while there are big dollars in the U.S. and in the EU. There are, to say the obvious, billions and billions of people who live in places which, with much less stable economies, yeah. much less stable currencies, and to them, it's obvious you want to go to a currency that is not pegged to you know the whims of your you know autocratic or corrupt corrupt government. Yeah, that makes sense. So, one idea that I've I've had and been pushing publicly a little bit is um, limit trading to tokens that have some sort of intrinsic value. Now, intrinsic value mm -hmm. could mean there's simply a limited supply like Bitcoin. It could mean Ethereum because these are applications being built on the blockchain and therefore they enable other ideas. But but something more than just completely like, hey, more than momentum, you know? And in a you know, this would violate antitrust laws, but of course you can you can amend them. You let the ten biggest exchanges, they all agree, like, hey, we're only gonna trade these twelve coins or whatever it is, and then the rest become like junk bonds. Right. And right. at that point, if people choose to trade them, they're taking a lot of risk and no one really feels bad for them if they lose it because they were very much warned. What do you think of that idea? Yeah. I mean, I, the interesting thing about that is that New York State has actually tried to do something like that. They have something that's called the, the green list and they don't have a kind of a super clear definition of what qualifies a coin to get onto the green list. Um, but it is, you know, coins like like you said, ones that are established that, you know, I think largely have some kind of intrinsic value, um, ones that are not, you know, sort of being pitched by Elon Musk on a, on a whim. Um, and so I like that, but but that's that's just one state state, state regular, and and the significance of that is not just because you know this tiny universe of companies that wants to be in New York, relatively tiny universe, um, but because it's a standard that can then be used, I think either adopted by the industry, it can be pushed by you know Finra even. It, conve um, it conveys legitimacy, not yeah. unlike one part of the view of the digital, digital dollar from some people in, in, in the crypto community. So Sam Bankman-Fried, what do you think, you're a lawyer, what do you think happened and what do you think happens? Does he go to jail? Like, what's going to happen? Yeah, you know, it's really interesting to, to see what what the jurisdictional reaches of the United States government um, when it comes to, you know, the crimes that it seems like he, he pretty clearly committed. Um, usually, the U.S. doesn't have a really hard time uh, reaching um, 
you know, financial criminals um, who are like just just overseas um, because you're making use of the wires in the U.S. financial system. They're right. crossing through um, the United States, right? Um, he's and then you see, you see his, his public comments afterwards, his kind of um, DMs with reporters, um, his his interviews with the Times with with other reporters. Um, he just seems to have like really no remorse. And I think that when you have a fact pattern like you do in the public record before they collapsed, you then have a, a new CEO who's basically a, a bankruptcy monitor who's going in court you know, every week and saying, this is the worst disaster I've ever seen, and there's been a theft and misappropriation and commingling of funds. And then you have a CEO and founder who's showing no remorse. I mean, <laughs> that's, that's a really compelling case for, for the Department of Justice. For sure. And so look, we know he's not dumb, right? So if he's showing yeah. no remorse, it seems like, A, he's a sociopath. Yeah, Maybe he is. Yeah, right? it definitely seems to be op- option A. Yeah. B, he just genuinely believes that they didn't really do anything all that wrong, um, and he just can't get his head around any other concept. Because, you know, look, he, he's maybe he's sort of a Bernie Madoff type. Maybe he's more of a kid that got way in over his head. Either way, he's responsible for the outcome of this thing. Yeah, yeah and I, you know, I think the Elizabeth Holmes sentence actually is really bad for, for Sam Bankman-Fried because now that's the target, right? Mm-hmm. Eleven and a quarter years. <laughs> right. So whether it's you know Southern District of New York or D.C. or Northern District of California, whatever it is, that prosecutor, that U.S. attorney is going to want to exceed <laughs> right. that sentence. You know, right? Uh, so it should be pretty interesting. So. Um, what's your prediction for crypto for 2023? Um, I think it's going to be um, a lot of, you know, a lot of the industry um, raised a lot of money, obviously, over the past 18 months. Um, they have a lot of runway. Um, those who manage their sort of reserves responsibly and actually have something constructive to build, not just a kind of get rich, rich quick scheme, um, they're going to dig in. And I think they're going to continue to make modest um, fundraises. Um, and capital raises um, to to continue moving downfield because I think there's also and I, I'm actually really curious in your point of view on this, Bradley, as a as a VC. You know, we hear a lot now from the industry saying, you know, if you forwarded me an, an email from from one company about how yep. you know it, it, this is you know dire financial times, but now it's one like where we have the highest conviction, we're going to invest more than ever or be be more committed than ever. Um, I mean. Some of that might be bullshit, but some of that's also true. Well, if, if you've invested tons of money, I mean, don't you want to well, actually see, see not, it through? And not just that. I mean, there are crypto-specific funds, Web3-specific funds. They were raised for that purpose. Their legal documents say that they need to invest in these types of companies, and there's some mm-hmm. leeway in that stuff. But And they've raised a ton of money, right? So they're not going to not deploy the capital because that's how they make a living, right? If they mm-hmm. just say, oh, we're giving it all back to investors, then they're broke, right? So like... Yeah. They're going to keep investing. Um, So I haven't seen a crypto deal, a direct crypto deal, since the whole SBF uh, fiasco. So I I haven't seen like a short-term valuation impact. We saw one deal, but um, the founder brought it to us first, so there's not even a valuation yet. We'll probably set it with him if we do it. Um, But I will be curious to see. But I bet that it will not be as steep of a decline as one might think. Mm -hmm. All right, so let's pivot to cannabis. So you also work on, on a bunch of cannabis issues. Um, Albany yesterday finally issued licenses to, I think, the first 36 uh, retailers for dispensaries. I, you know, I would argue, and I had an op in the Daily News the other day making this case, too, too little, too late. I mean, when you came in here, you said to me, which was, the, which was the shop where the guy got shot? 
And I was like, we was one across the street? No, it was the one two doors down. And there's like five more if you just keep walking down Orchard Street. So why would anyone want a, a weed license if you can just do it for free anyway? Yeah, well, I think, I think the, the, the hope is um, once you open up your shop um, – that then the city does begin to crack down on the, some of the illicit sales from unlicensed vendors. Um, but, but, but you're right. I mean, there, there are, look, there, there were a whole lot of, um, a whole lot of problems in California. Um, there've been a whole lot of problems in Colorado. Um, and there's going to be a whole lot of problems in New York too. Um, it's just a matter of, you know, how, how, how dexterous are regulators going, going to be at kind of solving some of those problems? Because look, we, you know, made a policy decision in this state that we want to, you know, uh, give um, a head start to all those folks who were dis- disproportionately impacted by insane drug laws and marijuana laws yep. over the years. I think which, we is, all, which is good. It's great. Um, but we also made the requirements to, I mean, the requirements to, to open up a retail, store, a retail store in a place like New York City, much less Manhattan, I mean, it's really high. You got to raise a lot of money, yeah, even, I'm, even I'm, if you get favorable I, terms. Sitting in my extremely unprofitable bookstore, <laughs> I can tell you that I'm, I'm quite familiar with that. <laughs> so, um, you know, it, it, it doesn't really matter how many grant programs you start up, and I'm glad that we did a, a number of them in, in New York State. It's still going to be a really, it, it's still really expensive to run an operation, particularly when your supply chain is very tightly controlled. It has to come from New York. There's going to be very strict rules affecting, you know, that affect your supplier, your distributor, your cultivator that are all going to flow down to you and flow down to your customers. Um, and then, you know, we're, we're going to see once all those regulations are in effect, um, do they fix things fast enough so that the high price that it's going to cost to buy from a licensed dispensary um, can be fixed and can be lowered quickly enough so that you don't lose all those customers. Right. And, and by the way, right. The, 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 the shops doing it right now, they're not even paying taxes on it. Right. So right. like, they could afford to sell it for less. And look, P&T Network is sort of a passion project for me, so I just fund the losses and I knew we would lose money. But like yeah. most businesses can't do that. Right. Right. And so do you see a world where the city and the state get their shit together and like truly crack down on, at this point, hundreds and hundreds of stores selling weed in New York City? I think that they feel like politically there's not enough cover for them to do it yet. Right? Even though... They're saying we have these licenses. These people went about it the right way, and these are people who were already negatively impacted by, you know, really bad drug laws. You don't think that's enough political cover for them to do what? It seems like an obvious thing to do. Yeah, not not until those stores are up and running, and those store owners are saying, "I can't turn a buck because I've got all these illegal vendors on the left of me, on the right of me, and in front of me." And the other question that I've had, and I'm not, maybe there is no distinction, but you know, there is this general problem of drugs being laced with fentanyl, right? And that Mm -hmm. is deadly. There was that Wall Street Journal story that kind of seemed to really make the rounds a few weeks ago about a couple of yuppies who bought Coke and they were laced with fentanyl and they all died. It made made the rounds because people like us all of a sudden are like, oh, these people are like us. Right. Um, So the one thing is both a parent and, and as a consumer, like if if I knew that there was a meaningfully higher degree of safety in a dispensary, uh, and there was an actual risk of buying an edible or some product with fentanyl. I think that's a material difference. Yeah. And by the way, you know, a good, a, also very, very good political cover to go out there and shut all this shit down. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I, I even call myself think, thinking about it too. I said, well, I don't a gummy or you know, flour. I kind of, I'd rather know what's what's in here. Right. With flour, the, like, the, it's not going to get laced with anything. Yeah. Um, so. Um, New York kind of builds this ecosystem, but New York has moved very, very slowly on this issue. 
Biden has already said that he wants to deschedule cannabis from Schedule One. They didn't say till what, but but basically, as I understand it, what it means is right now, because cannabis is, is considered a Schedule One drug, like heroin or cocaine or whatever it is, um, even though it's legal within particular states, there's no interstate commerce, right? So right. ultimately, in the way that the U.S. economy really functions is everything, because state lines are pretty arbitrary, right? Like everything is sold and everywhere, and wires are crossing and advertising and trucks and all of this stuff. Um, once that happens, I think the Unilevers of the world get into cannabis pretty quickly. Once that happens, why does, because you, you've, you've worked for a couple, worked with a couple of different cannabis startups. Why do any of those guys survive? It seems to me that they're all going to get driven out of business by Philip Morris and Kraft and Anheuser-Busch. Well, I think they're all hoping they're all hoping that one in states like New York, where the licensing regime has been so kind of strictly created, um, that they're in a position where there's not going to be you know a new licensee who can open 50 dispensaries all around theirs. Um, but what what they're really building towards is 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 to being acquired, you know the, if, the right. But who has right? So I totally get that. And there are some companies like the only we've never done a weed deal out of out of Tusk Ventures, despite the fact that I'm you know a pretty vocal advocate for legalization of drugs generally. The only yeah. one I ever regret passing on was Dutchie, and it's because they make regulatory compliant software that is so specific mm-hmm. that it's easier for a Unilever to buy them than to try to rebuild it. But if it's just branding, like why would anyone buy these companies? Like, and by the yeah. way, the real money's not gonna be in the retailing, it's gonna be in right. the manufacturing, the distribution, all of that. Right. Right. Yeah. No. I, I, that's that's a great point. I mean, and I, to to me, the, the 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 highest hurdle has always been the financial system. You know, I mean, it's it's crazy the kind of contortions we have to go through in right. these states where there's um, legalized recreational cannabis um, to actually get these stores capital and move money around. I mean, as soon as you can turn on the access to the financial markets, I think it it changes everything. Right. So in the venture world, there's this thesis that psilocybin is the next cannabis, uh, will get legalized along the same paths, and as a result, is a good business. Um, Again, I'm a believer in psilocybin. I've done ketamine therapy, but I have not made any investments in the space because I still don't really believe that it's a scalable tech company or business. Um, Politically, do you see that you think psilocybin kind of moves pretty fast in a place like New York or any state? Because of the kind of weed precedent, or do you think it's sort of its own ballgame? Well, I think that you know the the weed, the weed precedent, as many people will recall, was first making it available for medicinal use, yeah. and then slowly, somewhat painfully slowly, making it available to a wider patient population and then to the general public. Um, yes, I see it right now. Um, if nothing changes, if no politician makes makes a giant push, I think it moves in the, in that direction. There's just too, there's just too much mounting evidence about. Um, the psychological benefits, uh, the mental health benefits um, for certain patients for psilocybin. Um, but, you know, I can tell you, I mean, on, uh, as soon as we get back from, from Thanksgiving, and I don't want to give too much of a heads up to our, you know, competitors or imitators, but that's, we have sort of a, a, a firm-wide brainstorm and planning session around psilocybin for, for 2023. Oh, interesting. I'm going to see if I can get myself invited for that. I mean, All right, let's give it to politics. Um, so start with, with New York, and then we'll go national. Um, New York City. Eric Adams is now close to a year in as mayor. I think it's fair to start saying, okay, some of this is now your city, your policy is not just sort of a terrible legacy of Bill de Blasio. How do you think he's doing, and where do you think he's going to go from here? I think he's doing fine, but I think that's 
that's the most you can say right now, and that's the least you can say at the same time. Um, you know, uh, there's a lot of people who, when he took office, said the city was going completely down the shitter. Um, now I think it's really hard to make that argument if you actually, like, walk the streets and live in Manhattan or live in Brooklyn. Um, but do people feel like it's gotten significantly better? Do they feel like New York's kind of on, on the right track? And you sense, I mean, you sense it when talking to people and you see it in the polling, people are still really uncertain about how things are going are going to break. And I think that, you know, if we have a enter an economic downturn, downturn in the next couple quarters, um, that feeling of unease is going to only increase. You know, we know that there are tech jobs that are, you know, uh, tech companies are either laying people off or kind of slowing down on, on hiring. That affects New York enormously. Wall Street, there is some movement out of New York, particularly in the back office or kind of middle middle office jobs, we call them, um, to, you know, southern states. Um, that, that's going to continue to contribute to a feeling of unease. Uh, there was a big New York Times story today about how um, this, the New York City public school system is losing students and thus like losing revenue and losing buy-in from different communities that have traditionally helped, you know, grow, grow the public school system um, and help, you know, provide a more equitable um, education across 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 the city, um, you know, those are still really huge challenges for Eric Adams, and so I think the question is going to be, does he rise to the occasion? Um, now, I think in order to do that, he's going to need some actual like, bold policies um, and show that he has a temerity to actually follow through on them. And that right now, I think, is the big open question. Um, he's starting to signal that he can, you know, exercise some fiscal restraint. Obviously, there's lots of budget hawks who think that he's not going far enough, and we're still kind of set up for a bad, a bad situation if there's a recession. Um, but I think if he can combine a bold vision and just the same kind of almost carefree, really bold attitude he brought to the campaign into his yep. first few months of office of, I don't give a fuck about what you think about me because I got my base. I know what I'm doing. People elected me, and this is how we're, we're going to do things. I think he's going to be successful. Yeah, and I, I do think that he's he's sticking to that. And so Now, Hochul, um, she won re-election not by as much as a, a New York governor typically does, um, yeah. but, you know, she won. Um, but the whole campaign was, I'm a Democrat, and Zeldin is pro-life and pro-Trump, right? What's mm-hmm. her agenda? What's her vision? Do you have any, I mean, you spent a long time in Albany. Do you have any sense of like what she actually wants to do for the state? I don't, you know, the general sense is that she wants to continue to build New York as an economic powerhouse, right? But mm-hmm. that's still really broad and kind of vague, yeah. right? Um, so we saw she was, you know, thrust into the spotlight, governor for a year, um, obviously without being elected because she succeeded um, a governor who resigned in disgrace. Um so she struck a couple of large development, you know, kind of, kind of redevelopment deals. Struck a deal to build a new uh, Bill Stadium in Buffalo. Well, that's yeah, that, you know, I think most <laughs> people would not say that was a good deal for the taxpayers. Well, yeah, uh, people in Buffalo might 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 disagree. Obviously, a huge base of Democratic votes. Yeah. Um, that you have you have you have you know a big big project in Manhattan, a big one in Buffalo, um, huge kind of tax credit program uh, for the semiconductor industry, you know, a huge factory going up in central New York. Um, so it was, those are kind of her signature items. Um, but what's on the agenda? I think what, what's going to be really interesting to watch is um, the tension between, I think, the governor's more moderate impulses and sort of economic development first agenda against a legislature that's still, I think, largely driven by progressive activists and I think, you know, if it's really, if we're talking about words that resonate with the rest of the country, it's really 
leftist activists, not even progressive anymore. Um, and they still drive the agenda when it comes to housing, which is an evergreen issue, um, to drug policy, to criminal justice policy. Um, and how does Hochul navigate those waters? To your point, we don't really know what her agenda is. Um, and even the advocates haven't really set forth a, a very clear agenda. So this might be the first time in a while where we come out of um, the starting gate in January and there's just nothing really big happening. Right. So if, if one big thing does happen in Albany in 2023, what, what, what might it be? God, you know, it's really pathetic, Bradley. I, I don't even know. I don't I mean, even think. Maybe think, some more bail reform modification. Uh, I don't maybe. think the legislature really wants to do it. Yeah. No, the legislature does not, does, not, does not want to do it. They want to get better on the messaging for it. They still feel like it's being misreported, which, you know, they have, they have, they have a case to make on that. Um, but we don't know what the agenda is. I mean, I, I, I think there's going to be, you know, enormous pressure again to get a bolder housing policy done. Yep. You know, we saw um, kind of sweeping changes in California enforced at the state level to require greater density housing uh, because of their housing crisis. Um, I think we might see something like that play out again right. in New York. And, you know, in New York, you know, we don't have the, just to give people a, a quick tutorial, there's not a, there's not a system of, a, a great sort of system of kind of hearings and talking about bills and a lot of scrutiny. It's sort of like things get brought up and figured out behind, sorted out behind closed doors and agreed to behind closed doors in a matter of weeks. Right. And then you have a massive policy. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, I mean, the one thing that I'm hoping for, although I don't think this is considered massive policy change, but we're part of a coalition that's pushing for universal school meals in New York. Um, we'll run a very fulsome campaign this year to do that. So my, my hope is that we can get that done because it, it would help a lot of kids. All right, so you also worked in, in politics in D.C. Um, Biden running in 24? I think so. I think he believes he's the only person who can beat um, Donald Trump in 2024. And honestly, I don't really know who else, who else can. Um, I mean, sure. I mean, I, I like I like Mayor Pete. I think he's great. Um, you know, you still need to win the base in uh, in Democratic politics or in Republican politics. And the base for the, for the Democrats is black voters. And I think he's made some inroads, at least you can point to anecdotally. But at the end of the day, um, has he done enough? And has he rid himself of some of his you know, problematic baggage when he was mayor to actually win over those, those folks, particularly when he's going to have to compete with Kamala and maybe a few right. others? Although, I mean, I can list Biden's accomplishments. And I think there are a few that are definitely credible and legitimate. But Specific to black voters, is there anything he's achieved in the last two years that he can point to that, that would really make people feel like, yeah, we really have to reelect this guy? Well, I, I mean, for, for Biden, I mean, I, I think that, you know, I, I'm always really reluctant to, you know, like, I, I think one of the greatest mistakes that Democrats ever made, I think, in modern times electorally was just assuming that Latino voters only care about right. immigration. And in reality, for a very long time, it's been the fifth or sixth or seventh or eighth top top issue right. for them. What matters most is the economy, schools. Right. Our current. colleague Cristobal was on a few weeks ago, and he said the best way to think about Latino voters today is the same as white working class voters. Right. Mm -hmm. and, 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 you know, to make the connection back to our mayor in New York City is that, that that's how he thought about black and Latino voters. Um, mayor Adams, obviously African-American mayor, um, he didn't do something particularly special. He treated... White working class voters pretty similarly as he did to black working class voters, Latino working class voters, and then and then ended up having a, a broader appeal across across the whole the whole city. Um, so you know, 
I can't obviously speak speak for for black voters or for any large large, large group of voters, but I do think that you know um, we saw in 2020 that um, black voters were particularly attuned to the threat that Donald Trump um, opposed to our to our democracy and to our country, and I think to all working class people, and you know they're really the reason that we won, and so you know I. I don't know that you need to inspire voters with this message of hope and change as much as total fear in the alternative and a pretty decent track record of success overall. If Trump does get indicted, does that A, change whether or not he does run, and B, does it impact how he actually does it all? I think Donald Trump will lose for a number of reasons, but I think, you know, the appointment of special counsel, it's like, I just, I can't believe we have to endure this shit again. I mean, I'm sure they did it for all the right reasons. I'm sure it's great and it's going to be fine. And but it's like, it's I, 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 yeah, it's, I know. Maybe it's necessary, necessary, but it's, it sucks. Yeah, it, it, it's necessary, but it sucks. And you know, I, I, it's you, you politically, you almost stop to 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 you know put any value on an indictment, right? Because Donald Trump runs a grievance-driven campaign. He runs a party and a base driven on grievance. And if you give him more ammunition to fuel that that grievance, you're only going to empower him among his most ardent supporters. Um, and yes, do, do I think there are, you know, the, the regular independent voter doesn't want to vote for an indicted politician? Yes, absolutely. At the same time, you know, we don't know what the strength of the indictment is going, going to be. I mean, I've I, I've worked for offices in, in law enforcement where you prosecute um, a, a politician, and it's kind of a flimsy charge, and either gets thrown out or they win or you just— Yeah, it can, it can backfire. I remember when, this was a little while ago when John Street was the mayor of Philly. He was a really bad mayor, but he was also really corrupt. Mm-hmm. And when it leaked that the FBI was bugging his office, that actually propelled him to re-election. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah it's I'm, kind of amazing. Or just look at New Jersey. Now, New Jersey obviously has a history of <laughs> tolerating corruption. But Bob Menendez, U.S. senator, was not only yeah. indicted, he was prosecuted, and he was not acquitted. He wasn't convicted, but he also wasn't acquitted. He's fine politically. Yeah, yeah. and there was some bad totally stuff fine. in there. It was not. Yeah. It was not great, you know, and there were— you know, prostitutes involved and, you know, all sorts Medicare of Medicare fraud. Yeah, Medicare fraud. It was not it was not great stuff. Now, I'm not saying he was guilty of it, but, you know, he was, you know, his name was was dragged through the mud, rightfully or wrongfully. Um, and, yeah, he survived it. Now no one even talks about it. So, I mean, look, I, I, I think Trump's a different animal. I think, you know, Trump finds a way to weaponize this kind of stuff in a way that no other politician before him ever really did, you know, with some with some obvious examples. Uh, or, or exceptions, Bradley, like, like, like you pointed out. Um, but, you know, it, that, that does scare me. You know, the fact that we're going to have this sort of looming, you know, boogeyman that Trump can always point to is that they're, they're always coming after me. They're always coming after me. Look, they tried this special counsel. Now it's another special counsel. And, you know, the bar for him when it comes to corruption is just so high in our media environment that, you know, I could do 10 episodes on just media criticism, but I won't bore. bore What's funny, that was my last, so my last question was going to lead you into that, not about Trump specifically, but if you look at where Twitter is and where it seems to be going, I mean, you have as keen of a sense of the impact of Twitter on media and politics as anyone I know. If you had to kind of think about it and say, okay, based on the direction of Twitter, the direction of politics, direction of media, where do you think this all lands? I'm not sure it, it changes all that much. I mean, there's been a bunch of belly aching on Twitter about Elon Musk, and I, I get it. I mean, when he said he was letting Trump back on the platform, I, I, I sighed and said, you got to be fucking kidding me. And, you know, but 
look, if he has enough resources to keep the thing running, I think it's going to turn out to be a spectacularly bad investment for him. Um, but at the same time, it's clearly a drug for him, too. And so he's going to stick with it. There's, and, and, by the way, and for reporters. Yeah, right. I mean, right. Re- reporters have built entire platforms, their entire platform as re- reporters, by being on Twitter. Mastodon has already sort of failed as a kind of public experiment, I think. People, it's just it's just too complicated, too, way too much friction. Um, you can't really build an audience. You can just kind of talk to a very small number, even smaller number of people um, than, than on Twitter. Um, so I think reporters are, are, are going to keep on using it. You know, I'm sure advertising revenue will dry up, but it, it, it's going to stick around and it will... Unfortunately, I mean, let me just say the New York Times for a minute. I mean, I just, I just have to go there, okay? Yeah, sure. The New York Times, when I, when I grew up, was basically religion. I mean, I'm, I'm Jewish, but really we follow whatever the, the New York Times said. Now it's like the New York Times is trying to make itself the worst possible version of itself. I mean, the people who they are losing at the Times to either Substack or even Politico um, and the people who they're retaining— I mean, it's like they want to be the worst version of a news organization that covers politics because all they want to talk about is the shit that gets clicks about Donald Trump. And it doesn't mean they're wrong. It doesn't mean that they're as nearly as nefarious a force as, say, you know, Fox News or Newsmax or that entire ecosystem. But, you know, The New York Times has set up a model whereby they need to be it needs to be clickbait. And that goes that still goes largely through Twitter and Facebook. Um, and they've retained the talent that's going to help them do that. So I think they've made a decision already to, you know, boost that kind of talent that speaks to a certain audience that generates um, views through Facebook and Twitter outrage. Um, and so I don't see the whole ecosystem flipping overnight just because, you know, they're pissed off at Elon Musk for laying off a bunch of engineers. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that's right. Well, I know it's a last question, but I think the Times figured out that the Fox News business model is actually the best business model in, in media, which right. is, you know, find a group of, you know, subscribers, viewers, whatever it is, who do feel kind of disenfranchised and angry about the world and just spend all of your time, you know, telling them that they're right and pointing at other people that they can blame for being evil for their problems in their own lives or whatever it is. And, you know, it's not good journalism, but it certainly works. I mean, it's, it sells. It, it, it sells it to, to people. Yeah, I mean, you know, and the, I mean, the, the the fucked up thing about it is that you know you see even in the Times every day you see you know by you know five different journalists who are in a war zone in Ukraine in Eastern Europe you know uh, kind of risking life and limb and their and their and their you know uh, professional career to report accurately in in a war zone. And it's given equal billing to something to a, you know, a really incremental development in one of the seven different investigations that may go nowhere on Donald Trump. Um, and, you know, what gets picked up on TV, what gets explored, what, what gets the, the more resources? It's that tiny investigation to Donald Trump or to Matt Gates or whoever the hell is making noise on, on, on Capitol Hill on, on the Republican side. And, um, you know, it, it's just it's really not, not, not healthy for our media ecosystem, not healthy for our democracy. And Twitter fuels it, but I don't see it going away. All right. We'll leave it at that. Eric Schroeder, thanks for joining us. Thanks, Bradley. Thanks, Bradley.